Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus' death and resurrection is good news for all ages and people from all over the world. And we pray that we would, all of us, get something of that this morning and that you would impact our hearts with this glorious news by your Spirit. Please help us, help us to concentrate, help us um, to hear your voice. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the first of two parts. We're going to look at two little bits of John's Gospel. We're going to have some singing in the middle. So we're starting with this little excerpt from John 1 verse 29. Imagine with me that you are standing at your front door and you are waiting for someone special to arrive, someone whom you haven't seen for ages, but you are longing to see them. Who would that be for you? Maybe a friend who moved to a different school a few years back and you've not seen them since. Maybe a grandparent or a cousin who lives a long, long way away. Well, you're standing there waiting for them to turn the corner of your street and walk down the road towards you. And you can't wait to hug them. You can't wait to pay, perhaps to, to play with them again. You can't wait to catch up on all their news. But there's a problem. The problem is that it's a really foggy day and you can't see the bottom of your street. In fact, you can't even see three doors down the road. And so you keep seeing these shadowy figures looming up out of the mist. And each time you're thinking, is it them? Is it them? But as they get closer, you start to realize it's someone else. Too tall, too short, too young, too old. And the stranger just walks on by. How hard is it waiting like? How hard is it to feel your hopes rise and then fall again and again and again? And how big is the flood of relief and joy when that person finally looms up out of the fog and you can make out the warm smile and the twinkling eyes that you love so well? The relief is huge, isn't it? Well, that may be how many Israelites felt 2,000 years ago as they were waiting and waiting for God to save them. Israel kept making the same sacrifices for sin year after year after year as we've been hearing the past few weeks. But their sins kept piling up like dirty clothes in the corner of a bedroom. Lasting forgiveness never seemed to come. And God seemed far away from his people. Perhaps you felt something like that yourself. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you are, and you just really don't feel secure in your faith. And you just have this nagging fear that God won't accept you as you are. Maybe you keep trying harder and harder to be a good person, to be a kind person. But it's not enough. And perhaps you feel there is something you are so ashamed of in your past that you just don't know if 
if God could ever forgive that. Perhaps there are dark and twisted thoughts lurking in your heart, and they wait below the surface, ready to burst out like some kind of sea monster any time your conscience starts to feel at peace. Well, for all of us, whether we are Christian or not, whether we are young or old, the words of John the Baptist this morning in our passage in John 1.29 should be the best news. More welcoming than that long-lost friend or relative appearing out of the fog and wrapping their arms around you. John the Baptist is a prophet, and God sends him with a special job. He was to prepare the way for God to come and save his people. And when John sees Jesus of Nazareth walking towards him, he cannot stay silent. Look, he cries, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are meant to sit up and listen. What? You mean he's finally come? He's actually here? You mean our sin can really finally be forgiven once and for all? Yes. Yes, it can. He really has come. But how can we be sure? Because God the Father has marked him out with a special sign. Way back in Isaiah 42, God started to tell Israel about the promised servant of the Lord. The servant was a mysterious figure who would die for the sins of many people. We heard about him last week. And God said this about him in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. What does God put on him to mark him out and equip him? He puts his spirit on him. And who did John the Baptist see coming down upon Jesus at his baptism? Look with me again at John 1, verse 32. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, on Jesus. So Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the promised servant from Isaiah 53 who would be led to the slaughter like a lamb. He is the one who would be killed during the Passover festival as the perfect Passover lamb but not for his own sin. As Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. We are like foolish, straying sheep who don't listen to their shepherd. We are like sheep who, who run away and don't care about the danger that we're heading into. But Jesus came like a sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, 
He came to bear all the punishment for our foolishness, our disobedience, our rejection of God. He came to bring us sheep back to God. He, Jesus, is God's chosen one, as John says in 134. What does this mean for us this morning? Well, if you do believe in Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice that it is like the stranger, the long-awaited, long-lost friend or relative has come and enfolded you in their embrace, except that that person is God the Father who has welcomed you into his family through the blood of Jesus because all your sin has been taken away. You are home. You could not be safer. You could not be closer to God. You could not be more loved by him. Rejoice. But what about if you still carry around that nagging fear that God won't forgive you because of past or present failure? I wonder if you see what John says again in 129. He says Jesus takes away your sin. As far as God is concerned, it's not just been loosely covered over like piling up a few cushions on the sofa to hide the melted chocolate that you smeared there. No, your sin is taken away. Imagine the guilt and shame of your sin is like an 80-liter rucksack filled with bricks. And you have to carry it around everywhere, every day, all day. That's like giving a piggyback to three of me at once. All of the time. That's a pretty impossible weight. Well, imagine that rucksack has been lifted up off your shoulders, dumped into a skip, driven away to the landfill site, crushed and buried. It isn't coming back. And as far as God is concerned, the guilt and shame of your sin is not coming back if you trust in Jesus this morning. You may struggle with it every day, but God has already forgiven it once and for all, taken away. Isn't that a relief? But maybe you're thinking, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how twisted my heart is. Well, I, I could say in reply, you don't know how twisted my heart is. Can God really forgive that? Well, yes, he can. Look again at what John says. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. We're not, we are, sorry, we are talking about the perfect sacrifice of the perfect man who is also the eternal God. 
It's a sacrifice big enough, good enough, powerful enough to take away the sin of the world. So it covers every sin of any person who has ever believed in Jesus or ever will. Not just the Israelites who Jesus came to first, people from any nation. And believe you me, there have been murderers, thieves, rapists, concentration camp guards, all manner of criminals among those who have believed in Jesus over the centuries. What makes you think your sin is so unique that he couldn't forgive yours? Can your sin really compare to the sum total of all of theirs? That's like comparing a pebble with Mount Everest. And anyway, the heart of sin is not the individual crimes. It's the heart, the human heart, that rejects God's love and his lordship over our lives. That's the root of what sin is. And that sin is the same in all people of every age. And Jesus has taken away a world's worth of it. If you doubt that God has or would forgive you this morning, won't you take him at his word? Won't you let him soothe away those nagging fears? And if you haven't asked Jesus for that forgiveness yet, can I ask why? What is stopping you? And can you see that there is no other way? As John the Baptist says, again, chapter 1, verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. There isn't another still to come. It was Jesus and it still is Jesus and it always will be Jesus. How could there be anyone else when Jesus has done all that is needed for the whole world? And why would God send him to die such a horrific death if there was another way for our sins to be forgiven? Whether you're five years old or 45 or 95, to quote another part of the Bible, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Will you let Jesus take away your sins today before it's too late? And for the rest of us, will we rejoice in how full, in how free, in how utterly complete that forgiveness is? Let's take a moment in quiet. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession and then we're going to sing.
Father, we want to thank you that you have undeniably, (laughs) definitively sent your Son once and for all, that he has taken away the sins of the world, of all who will believe in him. And thank you that so many of us this morning know that forgiveness. Thank you that we can come to you when we really, really understand this. We can come to you with light hearts, with hearts full of joy, enfolded into your embrace because of what Jesus has done. We praise you. And we want to ask for forgiveness for the sins of this week that that follow along behind us. Thank you that Jesus' death was enough for those two. We pray that you would cleanse our consciences and restore to us the joy of your salvation. I'm going to take a minute just for for confession, if there is anything particular you want to bring to God. And perhaps if, if you are one of those who has not trusted Jesus, but you feel the weight of your sin and know you want to ask him to take it away this morning, then leave a moment of quiet for that now. Okay, we have now arrived at the resurrection, and Jesus is out of the tomb and risen in this part of John's Gospel. But we're going to look at a slightly different aspect of it to usual. If you've ever read Goodnight Mr. Tom or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll know something about evacuees. They were children who lived in Britain's big towns and cities during World War II. Many of them had to leave their homes and their families during the war. They had to go and live with aunts or uncles or even complete strangers far away in the countryside. Why? Well, to keep them safe from the falling bombs that would soon be turning houses and factories to rubble. Now imagine that you were a small boy or girl. In 1940, leaving your home in London. Somehow, you are evacuated to a small village in rural North Wales because there's nowhere else left to send you. And you have to spend the rest of the war there, far from everything you have ever known. But if that wasn't already hard enough, no one in that village speaks a word of English. They all speak Welsh, and only Welsh. They can't talk to you, and you can't talk to them. How lonely would that feel? But worst of all, how terrible would it be when victory came and the war ended if no one could tell you that it was over? The villagers could be partying in the streets, but you would have no idea why. 
They could shout and make signs at you till they were blue in the face. But if you couldn't understand their language, you would have no idea, no clue that soon you could go home to your mum and your dad and your friends and the place that was so familiar to you. Wouldn't that be awful? Well, it would be a bit like that for the world if Jesus had not sent the Holy Spirit. In our first Bible reading, we saw that Jesus has won a great victory. He, the Lamb of God, has taken away the sin of the world. He's triumphed over sin at the cross. But what if the world never heard that news? What if Jesus' disciples were too afraid to tell the world? What if they stayed shut away behind locked doors, like at the start of our passage? Or what if no one could understand them because of the way that sin makes our hearts hard? The way sin makes our ears deaf to God's voice? How terrible would it be if the whole human race stayed as slaves to sin, following the devil's lies and condemned by God. When all the time there was a way to be saved, wouldn't that be awful? But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave the world in such a desperate state. We often think the resurrection is such good news because it speaks of new life forever. And that's true, it does. But a beautifully cut diamond has many different sides to it. And so with the resurrection. It's worth celebrating for more than one reason. And when John wrote his gospel, he wanted to highlight another reason too. Because Jesus is risen, he can send the Holy Spirit. He died as the suffering servant, but he has risen as the conquering Lord and God who will rule a new creation. And so he has authority to send God's Spirit to empower his church. No more hiding behind locked doors in fear. The Spirit gives disciples power to tell the world about Jesus' victory. And Jesus starts to give him to the disciples on the day he rises. So we can say forgiveness. Jesus won it. We Proclaim it. And we do it in the power of his spirit. Let's look at that in our passage. Let's see what's going on. First, in verse 21, the risen Jesus says to his overjoyed disciples, I am sending you. He's sending the disciples to tell of his victory. He's sending them to testify that he is the Lamb of God, who really has taken away the sins of the world. But then in verse 22, he breathes on them 
and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And whether this is a foretaste of what's to come at Pentecost or a first filling, I'm not quite sure. But it's really significant in Jesus' work as John understands it. Jesus does not give the disciples a really hard job and then just leave them to it on their own. He gives them the power they need. All the best toys come with batches included, don't they? So that you can play with them straight out of the box. They come with the power source they need. And Jesus' mission for his disciples is just the same. It comes with batteries included, if you like. It comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, for all this morning who are still feeling that weight, that unbearable rucksack of sin on their shoulders, Please would you lift it up, take it away, and bring joy and peace and lasting life for your glory. Amen. So the disciples can tell the world about forgiveness in verse 23. The disciples have authority to say, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And to say... If you reject him, your sins are not forgiven. You are condemned by God. And because the Holy Spirit is speaking, testifying alongside them, many people will believe. The Holy Spirit will convict them of the truth about Jesus. And their sins really will be forgiven, as Jesus says. Isn't it amazing that the risen Jesus gives us that power? And I say us because if you look at verse 19, maybe you notice that John doesn't say the 12 were there, as he often does if he's referring to Jesus' 12 apostles, his special friends and messengers. The apostle Thomas wasn't even there. And the ex-apostle Judas was dead. No, he just says disciples, which probably means other followers of Jesus were there in that locked room. Probably including Mary, who saw Jesus' empty tomb and then saw him in the garden. And Jesus sends them all. And he breathes on them all. So the command to go is for the whole church, for us too. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is for us too. God's very own power, the power that, that made the earth, that spun galaxies, that hung the stars, that power is at work in us and through us and around us. So we can go to and tell of his victory. Forgiveness. Jesus won it. We proclaim it. In the power of the Spirit.
Without the Spirit, our mission would be like the evacuee and the Welsh villagers who we imagined at the beginning. We could be yelling, victory has come! We can be forgiven! Let's celebrate! So we're blue in the face. But other people would have no idea what we were on about. But now, we can be confident that many people will understand. Why? Because the Spirit is like the translator that we need. And he's like a megaphone to amplify our feeble voices so that spiritually deaf ears can hear the good news. And he's like the surgeon's super sharp scalpel. He gives our stumbling words the power that they need to pierce the hardest hearts. Who's the person in your class or your workplace or your family, who you think would never believe in Jesus in a million years? Is there someone so naughty or so uninterested or so scornful about God that you just can't see how they would ever believe? Maybe you don't want to tell them anyway because you find it so hard to like them. Well, the Holy Spirit means that we should not write them off. The power of the Holy Spirit means they can be changed. Just think of C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who was a professor here in Oxford. I learned recently, apparently, he was quite naughty at times, even as a Christian. And worse still, he simply could not believe for years and years in God, especially after the horrors of fighting in the trenches in World War I. How could there be a God who made a world like that? Over the years after the war, he tried so hard to come up with clever arguments for disbelieving God and rejecting him. But however hard he tried, it just wouldn't work. He couldn't find the one thing that he was looking for most of all in the world. Joy. And in the end, it was the simple message of Christianity that won him over. The good news of Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And who is risen as Lord. But he didn't come to believe naturally. Who would in such a hostile state as he was? He came to believe because of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And that very same Spirit is still with us now. As long as Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven, he will keep sending the Spirit to us. And the Holy Spirit will continue convicting the world that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there is hope. Forgiveness. Jesus won it. We proclaim it in the power of his Spirit. But finally, maybe, like me, you just don't feel up to the job a lot of the time. 
Maybe you secretly feel discouraged because none of your friends has ever believed in Jesus. Maybe you just don't believe they will because they seem so uninterested or so angry at God even. And perhaps you just don't know how to answer their questions. Or perhaps you get all tongue-tied when they ask and then you just you don't know how to answer. Maybe like me, you find it really hard to want to get to know some of the lost and needy people around you. They're so different from you, so hard to like, you just don't want to. You don't want to have a conversation with them, never mind talk to them about Jesus. And that's where the Holy Spirit is good news yet again. Because he's not just there to change other people. He's not just there for the world outside. He's come for the church in here. He's come to change us too. And if you're a Christian and you take nothing else away from this morning, please take this. The Holy Spirit can give you and me the courage that we never thought we would have. We've seen this time and time again throughout the New Testament, throughout church history, right down to the church around the world today. Often the Spirit doesn't give this courage until we have stepped out of our comfort zone in faith, trusting him to come through for us. But he can and he does come through for all who earnestly pray for him to do that. And he can also melt our hearts so that we begin to care more and more for the lost people around us. So that we begin to long for their salvation. So that we begin to forget ourselves and step out of our comfort zone and start to care for people who are so very different to us moving towards them in love. The Holy Spirit can melt our hearts to do that. I certainly need that. I wonder how many of you do too. So the Holy Spirit isn't just for the world out there. He is for the church in here. So let's rejoice today that Jesus is risen, that he has sent his Spirit and let's pray for that same spirit to change us. Let's pray that he would give us courage and boldness and love to proclaim Jesus' victory. Forgiveness. Jesus won it. We proclaim it in the power of his spirit. I'm going to hand back to Dan, who's going to lead us in prayer.